adventures in time and space. Told in future tense. Dimension. The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> to the Retro Radio Review. On this week's episode, we explore mystery on the California Gold Trail, meet an imposter on a plane, and see why a woman is pretending to be a little girl. All our episodes have original air dates from July 30th through August 5th. Our first program is Front Page Drama. It originally aired on August 5th, 1939. It's program 328 of the Hearst Syndication. Old Tuck Turns Detective originally appeared in American Weekly under the title of Tales of the California Gold Trail. We'll follow that with the casebook of Gregory Hood. The episode titled Double Diamond is a case about a robbery aboard an airplane. Its original air date for the program was August 5th, 1946. Finally, we'll close out the episode with Hollywood Star Time. This aired on August 3rd, 1946. The Major and the Minor is a comedy about a woman pretending to be a little girl. The show stars Robert Young and Joan Caulfield. So sit back and enjoy a trip to the golden age of radio. Front Page Dramas presents Old Tuck Turns Detective. This week's front page drama, Old Tuck Turns Detective, is a dramatization of another in the amazing true-life stories to be found in Tales of the California Gold Trail. This authentic history of the early days of the great California gold rush of 49 enters its fourth installment in next Sunday's American Weekly, well-named the nation's reading habit, because it is read by more people than any other publication in the world. Tales of the California Gold Trail is a stirring, colorful history filled with all the drama, comedy, romance, and tragedy of one of the most glamorous periods in the development of our country. The author of this most interesting work is an 81-year-old pioneer, one of the few remaining survivors of those stirring times, Judge J.W. Pitt, who lived in one of the most picturesque camps of Coloma, California. And now to our story, Old Tuck Turns Detective. Old Tuck put up a little cabin at Rawhide camp near Jimtown. Nobody knew much about old Tuck. He attended to his business and expected you to do the same, with no questions asked. He was tall, six foot two, a wiry, sinewy fellow with a pair of the clearest blue eyes you ever saw peering out at you. Well, from a, from a lean face, it was pretty near hidden behind a shaggy, sandy beard. His eyes could twinkle a smile at you or freeze you in your tracks with an icy glare, depending on the place. Talk with a southern drawl that he couldn't disguise. Somebody said he was from Kentucky. Well, they hung the name of old Tuck on him, and the answer to it never was known by anything else. He had a claim at Rawhide that he worked some. 
But he didn't seem to care much about getting a lot of gold. Didn't take much to the hard manual labor of digging. He spent most of his time sitting in poker games around Jimtown. Well, sir, late one afternoon, a very pretty young woman got off the stagecoach in Jimtown. She was well-dressed. Had all the looks of a lady of refinement. Was plain to see she was sure befuddled by her strange surroundings and little frightened at the loud voices and clatter of glasses from the nearby whiskey mill. Old Tuck had just stepped out of a saloon, and seeing the new arrival needed some help, he crossed over to her, pulled off his old felt hat, bowed very politely, and said, Good evening, ma'am. Can I help you? Oh. Now, don't be scared, ma'am. I'm not as bad as I look. Well, you're aiming to meet somebody? Yes, sir. I'm trying to find my husband. Is he in gym time? Is he looking for you? No. No, he's not expecting to see me. I don't even know where he is. Except he started out for the gold camp. I got off here because my money ran out. I didn't have spare to ride for him. Now, ma'am, don't you worry. Maybe I know your man. What's his name? I... I believe I can talk to you. I have to confide in somebody... My husband's name is James Hallett. Hallett? James Hallett? Yes. Don't recollect the name. What's it look like? You know, names don't mean much here about No, I know. I guess I might as well tell you the whole story. My husband's a fugitive. He was a bookkeeper and cashier in a mercantile establishment run by two partners back in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. Soon after Jim and I were married, they discovered a shortage of nearly $3,000 in the account. They accused Jim. Said he'd stolen the money to set up housekeeping. I didn't believe it. I knew Jim couldn't do such a thing. But the money was gone, and, and the evidence was all against him. Well, he disappeared one night. I didn't know what, what had happened to him until I received a note from Independence, Missouri. He was on his way to California. We'll find Jim for you, ma'am. Now, just you... Wait. I haven't finished. You must know the rest. A few weeks after Jim ran away, one of the partners shot and killed himself. He left a note clearing Jim. The partner stole the money from the firm to meet his gambling losses. I guess he thought he could blame Jim to square himself with his partner. But after Jim left, his conscience got to bothering him too much to go on. Now you know why I started right out to California to find my husband. What do you think I should do? I've just been thinking, and I've got that all figured out. There ain't no respectable place for a lady to put up here in Jimtown. So you're going with me to my cabin up the road between here and Rawhide. Oh, but I... Now, don't just wait a bit, ma'am. You'll be all right. They can't tell it by looking at me, but I've been a gentleman in my time. I know and respect a lady when I see one. You just come along. I guess old Tuck must have convinced her it meant no harm. Anyhow, the two of them started out just as dark as settling over the mountain. They all made a funny-looking path tramping along together. The tall, gangling Kentuckian and the dainty lady picking her steps and trying to hold her skirts out of the dirt. At the cabin, old Tuck fixed supper. Nothing much. Salt, pork, and beans. But it was the best he had. Well, there wasn't much talk while I ate. Mrs. Hallett probably wasn't quite sure yet she could trust her strange host. 
After they'd eaten, old Tuck got up and picked up his hat and ambled over to the door. I'm going to wait for a spell and get cabin yours. There's a right smart fly grub to see it is. And there's a wood pile right outside the door, and you'll be all right. Won't nobody catch you in my cabin. But I can't do that. What will you do? Ma'am, I'm uh, going to find that gem for you all. It's important he ain't using his right name, and except for different sizes, most all of us fellows look about alike. Uh, is there any uh, mark or habit he's got so I can tell him when I see him? Yes. I think there's one way you can recognize him. Yeah? When we were married, I gave him a cameo ring. It opens up and has a little picture of me in it. Jim promised he'd wear it always. Well, that'll be all right. I'll find him, ma'am. In the meanwhile, you all just rest and... Old Tuck saddled his horse and started out making the rounds of the saloons, gambling houses, and cabins all around Rawhide and Jimtown. And then he hit the longer trail. Day after day, old Tuck rode the trails from one camp to the Everyone and everything come under the glance of his piercing eyes. Nobody knew a man named Hallett. Nobody was wearing the cameo ring. And then one night he rode into the diggings at which to fly. Put up his horse for the night and strolled into the camp's busiest saloon, whose proprietor greeted him with... Well, I'll be darned if it ain't old Tuck. Howdy, Peggy. Come on in and have one on the house. Oh, I don't care for Good you. to see you. What you all doing so far away from home? They run you out of all right? Well, you sure got a busy place here. You must be doing well. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll take a little whiskey, please, ma'am. How you doing, old Tuck? What brings you over to these diggings? Well, I'll tell you, I'm looking for a fella. A fella named Pallet. He, he wears a fairly big cameo ring on one of his pictures. What for? You hunt gold. A lot of men out here, you know. Howard, did you say? Huh? Howard. No. Ain't heard that name. Have a drink. I look around, but uh, don't get too close. The boys are kind of funny about folks looking at their hands. Well, many thanks for the drink, Peg. I'll amble over and look over the boys. All right, Josh. I'll see you later. It's a good game down at the end table if you feel like sitting in. Come on, zero stars. Don't be so slow about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been having tough luck. Well, that's all for me, Mac. I'm clean and through for the night. Yeah, a stranger on my chair ain't very lucky. Well, yeah, much obliged. Yeah, I reckon I'll sit in if later. you all don't mind. Here's my poker dust. Oh, welcome, stranger. Yeah. Just in time. Hey, John. Yeah? Bring on all around the drinks and hurry up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, the man the players called Mac was wearing a ring. The very ring old Tuck had ridden nearly 200 miles fine. The man they called Mac was playing a reckless game. And it wasn't long before he was losing steadily. Now, old Tuck was a cagey hand in a poker game, and the pot started coming his way. The other players started pulling in their horns. But the one man old Tuck was watching got more careful. He tried to buck his luck with the cards running against him. The last of the man's money was gone when it became old Tuck's turn to beaver. But old Tuck pretended to ignore that and held him a hand anyhow. Come out. I'll take one card. 
There it is, man. One for me, I'm out. I'll take one myself. I'll check. I'll bet this is. I'll call. Sorry, Nick. You'll have to cover the bed if you want to see the end. Have no money to do it. I'm clean. Well, you took the hand, Nick. If you're out of dust, then uh, put that ring in the pot. All right, stranger. Yeah. Now, how's my flush? He's high. Not quite good enough, man. This full house to be. Hey, there now, that's quite a ring. Well, oh, it opens up, too. That picture. Why, it's... Well, I reckon you're Jim Hallett, ain't you? Well, son, I got some news for you. Wait a minute. Hold on, boys. Hold on, boys. Bring him here, but don't hurt him. No, no, it's all right. Don't hurt him. I'm sorry about that, son. But I reckon it caught my phone. I didn't count on that last play of yours. What I was aiming to tell you is this. Your wife are waiting for you. It's my cabin, Rawhide. She says you've been cleared. I told her I'd find you for her. You see, I'm out here for the same reason you are. The Lord's on my trail, too. I killed a man over my wife. I thought I was right. But the law said I was wrong. You go find Mr. Halleck, son. Good luck to The word comes slowly. An instant later, old Tuck was dead. Right or wrong, we always figured he checked in with a clean slate. You have just heard the front page drama entitled Old Chuck Turns Detective, a dramatization of one in a series of authentic stories of the California gold rush of 49. These thrilling, romantic, and colorful stories are part of the history of the discovery of gold in California entitled Tales of the California Gold Trail, written by Judge J.W. Pitt, 81-year-old pioneer and one of the few remaining survivors of the old 49ers. Don't miss this splendid historical feature in next Sunday's issue of the American Weekly, the magazine that is read by more people than any other publication in the world. The American Weekly is the nation's reading habit and comes to you each week as part of your Hearst Sunday newspaper.
Tonight, the Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to the story of The Double Diamond. Another exciting adventure from the casebook of Gregory Hood. Sunday night in San Francisco, and we have a date with Gregory Hood and his good friend and attorney, Sanderson Taylor. Tonight's rendezvous is down on the city's colorful waterfront. There, with a backdrop of the bobbing, brightly tinted sails of the fishing boats, lies that mecca of seafood, Fisherman's Wharf. Hello, Gregory. Hello, Harry. Sit down and join us. We were just discussing the merits of baked red snapper as compared to the subtler charms of booyah <laughs> Well, I'll be guided by you, Greg. I know this is one of your favorite hangouts. Well, I think you'd go for the snapper. They have a wonderful way of marinating the fish with lime juice, then icing it for several hours before cooking. Uh, look, Greg, while we're waiting to order... Oh, uh, okay, Harry. I can see that Monday night look in your eyes. <laughs> you want a story from the case store? Check. Well, this particular adventure happened in February last. I had to go to New York to look over a collection of wonderful Gobelin tapestries that had just arrived from Europe. Sandy was afraid he might miss some fun, so he decided to come with me. <laughs> Don't you believe it, Harry. I went along because I'm Greg's attorney, and I'm scared of his making a deal without me there to advise him. <laughs> but go on, Greg. Well, whatever Sandy's motives were, we found ourselves sitting in the bar of the San Francisco airport waiting for our plane to be called, and that's when the story really began. I remember as we sat there downing an extremely smooth ferry that I was in a singularly garrulous You know, Sandy, there are only two things I dislike about airplane travel. Eh? What are they? First, they allow you to smoke nothing but cigarettes. This is the last chance I'll have to enjoy this magnificent outsized hunk of briar until we land at Chicago. <laughs> well, in fact, it should make the other passengers very happy. Oh. Uh, what's your second piece? That you're not allowed to date the stewardesses. They're always extremely delectable. I get so lonely up there in the clouds. Mm, you do all that. Now, I'll tell you the one thing I do like about plane travel. And what's that? It assures me, uh, for a few hours at least, that you will keep out of trouble. Well, dullness is restful in very small doses. But for a steady diet, I really... Hey, Sandy, look at this. Hmm? Well, it's just a paper napkin crumpled in the bar. Look a little closer. Uh, Somebody's drawn something on it and looks at me. Great Scott, it's, it's quite a good likeness of a cobra's head. Yes, Sandy, which happens to be the Hood and Company crest. A very neat way of attracting my attention. And uh, read on the other side. Mm, let's see. Watch the colonel. What do you suppose it means? I don't know. It looks like beauty in distress, but there isn't a girl in the bar. Oh, I don't see any signs of a colonel, either. There's nothing over a captain in the uniform here. Oh, wait a minute, Sandy. Get a load of that elderly gent with the droopy mustachios sitting in the corner. Oh, yes. He'd certainly fit the bill for a Kentucky colonel, wouldn't he? It's almost a caricature. <laughs> I do believe he's drinking a mint julep. He is. Come on, Sandy. Let's follow this through. Oh, and I said you'd be out of trouble for a few hours. Oh, I'm terrible, sir. I'm terribly sorry. The clumsy of me. I stumbled against your table. Uh, let me order you another drink. Yeah, don't bother, sir. With me living here. Oh, I insist. Uh, bartender, bring another drink here, please. Yes, sir. Coming up, sir. Yeah, yeah, it was very kind of you, not sir. Not at all, not at all. Uh, by the way, my name's Gregory Hood, and this is Mr. Sanderson Taylor. I do, And I, sir, am Colonel Tolliver from Virginia. Mighty glad to know you, sir. Mighty glad. Mr. Hood, sir, you always a gentleman, sir. Continental Airlines, flight number 234, Chicago, New York, now loading in case 3. Ah, that's our plane. Excuse us, sir. And it's my plane. Too, sir. I should be there in a few minutes. Very well, Colonel. We'll see you on it. Come on, Sandy. Okay, Colonel. Yeah, goodbye, Colonel. Uh, here you are, 
about, Henry. You can take the gentleman's drink out of this heat exchange. Thank you, sir. Well, Sandy, this trip may not be as dull as you hoped. The colonel is a phony. His accent was unbelievable. And so was his grammar. He used you all in the singular, which no gentleman shall know. Well, now we've got to track down the writer of the message. Perhaps she'll be on the plane, too. Well, she is how to spot it. By matching up her lipstick with the particular shade used on the napkin. Well, thank I hope it'll look well on you. Hello, I 
I hear you're in trouble. Yes, the diamonds been stolen from my apartment. Um, Mr. Hood, I'm sorry. I was so abrupt with you earlier on. Oh, it's all right, Jerry. My approach must have seemed a little startling. May I look at your pendant? Yes. Well, you see, the diamond was tied out of its setting. At least, anyway, it would only have taken a second. When did you go to sleep, Miss Shaw? About an hour ago. And you're sure the pendant was intact then? Oh, yes, Mr. Hood. I went forward in the cabin to return a magazine. After I'd come back to my seat, I remember fingering the diamond as I dozed off. Hmm. Jane, do you remember how many people on this plane passed Miss Shaw's seat in the last hour? Well, I only noticed two. The gray-haired lady sitting up in front and Colonel Tolliver, the man you were asking about, Mr. Hood. Oh, well, I'll have a little talk with him. But before I do, I want to ask you to look at this note, Terry. As you see, the message on it is scribbled in lipstick of the exact shade that you're using. What's the Colonel? You didn't write that, Terry? No, I certainly didn't. That's odd. Well, before we start disturbing any of the other passengers, I'll have a talk with Colonel Tolliver. I know you're a phony. I'll go back to your seat, Miss Shaw, and pretend to be asleep. Very well, Mr. Hood, and thank you. And Jane, you pretend to be preoccupied with your coffee, Judge. I don't want him to smell a rat. Right you are, Mr. Hood. Gregory, 
I'm so grateful to you. Grateful enough not to prosecute the thief? Oh, I won't prosecute him. I've got the diamond back. That's all that matters. Good girl. I'll go and tell Jane that the fine name of Continental Airlines has been saved, and I'll let the colonel know that he can stop trying to make a parachute out of his shirt. Gregory, how can I repay you? Well, Terry, I can think of an appropriate reward. Oh, no? What is it? Your, uh, your lipstick still intrigues me, you know. Mm-hmm. Does it? Well, then, why not do something about it, Terry? Thanks, Terry. I rather think I will. California Sauterne. Ah, yes, a glass of Petri Sauterne and chicken fried till it's crispy and brown or roasted with a savory stuffing. What a combination. Petri Sauterne, you know, is an unusual white wine, beautifully golden in color. And what a flavor that Petri Sauterne has. Subtle, intriguing, really delicious. Believe me, you don't know how good chicken can be, or for that matter, how good fish and seafood can be, until you serve them with Petri Sauterne. And just make sure it is Petri Sauterne, because all Petri wines are good wines. Well, Greg, you had me fool there. I thought your story was nearly over. So there were two diamonds involved. Yes, Harry, and one of them was still at large, the one that I'd seen originally in Miss Shaw's pendant. But why did she claim the wrong diamond is hers? That's what I had to find out, Harry, and that's why, as we filed out of the plane for a half an hour stop at Chicago, I tapped the supposed Colonel Pollock on the shoulder. Huh? Uh, leave me alone, Hood. You won't prosecute. You got nothing on me. My friend here is an attorney. What do you say, Sandy? Well, maybe we could get him on carrying a concealed weapon, then. You guys lay off of him. Then tell me one thing, my fine, furious Virginia ham. You know, Don well that the diamond I listed off you was not stolen from that girl. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes, you do, but once I'd found it, you didn't protest. Obviously, its true origin won't bear going into. But why did the girl... I said to leave me alone. I don't know anything. Well, that's the last we see of the colonel. Stewart has told me Chicago's his destination. But the girl's going on to New York. Somewhere between here and there, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Oh, Greg, leave well enough alone. You were probably wrong, and it was the same down. Uh-huh, Sandy. All my bloodhound instincts were to work. In the meanwhile, though, I'll take advantage of being on terra firma again, like this pipe. <laughs> hey, uh, what's going on over there? Huh? Looks like a pipe. Uh, well, come on, Sandy. Call the 
police. Uh, is she going to be all right, Jane? Yes, she's just fainting. Oh, well, look after her. We'll get to the nearest phone. Very well, Mrs. Wood. We've got to try and head him off, Andy. Yeah, sure, but how? We haven't got the license number of the car. We don't even know what he looks like under those false whiskers. I know, I know, but he must be a known criminal in Chicago. I wonder if... Andy, we watched him at the airport bar in San Francisco. Which hand was he using to hold his glass? Uh, which hand? Yeah. Uh, the right. Exactly. And yet his revolver was in a shoulder holster under the right armpit for the left hand. And the dexter, huh? Then you better let me get on that phone. Why? You know your methods, Greg. Hmm? Find out what you need to know and ask the right guy. Okay. There's a lawyer friend of mine who knows every crook in Chicago. At this hour, I should find him a Joe the Angel City Hall Bar. Give me nickel, Greg. What? This is Hood Company business. Joe the Angel City Hall Bar. The Angel speaking. Is John J. Malone there? Oh, sure. It's for you, Mr. Malone. Okay. Bye, the Malone. Guide to do it. 
the train was delayed half an hour. They might have gone off without us. As it is, we've time for a drink. Come on, Herbie. Well, I'll have a glass of sherry. Two dry sherries, please. Yes, Hey, Greg, you still think there was another diamond? I know there was, Sandy. Hmm, where the heck is it? I wish I knew. Well, hello. Look who's coming in. Oh, well, it's Michelle. Oh, Gregory, you really are wonderful. The stewardess tells me you got my purse back. Yes, Cherry, and the diamond. Oh, uh, do you care for a drink or is not loading for ten minutes? What are you having? Cherry. I'll have a thing. Make that three sherries, please. Coming up. I feel me, Shaw. That blow didn't do any visible damage. Well, I think I just fainted with fright. Well, I must say my chin's awfully sore. Oh, I'm glad you're all right, Terry. Oh, Sandra, do you have some tobacco? Uh-huh, yeah. In the midst of all this excitement, I've forgotten to have that pipe, I promised myself. That's time for at least a third of the pipe full before we get on the plane. Before you light that monstrosity, I've got a reward to give you for getting my bag back. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you head a moment, Mr. Taylor, please? Oh, dear me. That's good. Aren't you afraid of shocking the barkeep, Terry? His back's turned. Gregory. Turn around, Sandy. This is interesting, Miss Shaw. Your lips might make a man forget almost anything, but I think it's a little odd that the girl I'm kissing should reach for the pipe in my breast pocket. Huh? What are you talking about, Greg? You'll soon see. I'll smoke that pipe now, at last. But, but Greg... Yes? Well, I... No, don't worry, darling. The heat won't damage your diamond. Well, Greg, what do you mean? Look at the result of my fondness for outsized pipe bowls. See what's been hiding in here, Sandy? Oh, great Scott. It's the original diamond. Sure it is. This cunning young lady went to the front of the cabin to return a magazine, she said. Actually, she slipped the diamond out of its setting, hid it in the bowl of my pipe while I was sleeping, and then reported it stolen. You must admit it was clever, Greg. Oh, it was brilliant. Too bad your cleverness has led you on the wrong side of the law. Yes, but Greg, why? Think what she accomplished. The searching of the colonel and the acquisition of his diamond. Then she did write that message in lipstick. Sure, she put the finger on the colonel, knowing that he'd thereby become the first suspect. The prettiest hijacking trick I've ever seen. I was rather proud of it. You knew that Tista was carrying the loot from San Francisco to Chicago, and you devised this plot whereby I, in person, should lift the loot from him and return it to you. Yes, but the original diamond, the one that she took out of her pendant and hid in your pipe while you were asleep. She knew that she'd intrigued me sufficiently to find an opportunity to get it back before I discovered Darn it. Darn it, Greg, you ruined a beautiful plan. Mm. I mean, young woman, in all my experience in law, I've never seen such a complete self-possession. Well, you're an admitted thief. Have you no conscience? Absolutely. Absolutely none. What are you going to do, Greg? The original diamond is presumably yours. You may keep it here. The other diamond, the one I listed from Keister, I shall return to the San Francisco police. Doubtless, they'll know where it came from. And what are you going to do? Not me. Sandy, you're my attorney. I imagine we can prosecute, can't we? Oh, yes, yes, we can, but I know what happened. Mm -hmm. She'd simply say she'd made a mistake in identifying the jewel, smiled at the jury, cross her legs a couple of times, and walk out. Here's your drink, folks. Oh, yes, thank you. Well, you ask me what I'm going to do with you, Terry. I'm neither a representative of the law or a moralist. But if you do get away with this, I warn you, I shall be on your trail. Oh, sounds crazy. Crime really doesn't pay, darling. I'll make it my mission to prove that fact to you. Oh, conscientious, aren't you? In the meanwhile, I'm going to drink a toast to you. I pledge the good fortune which has presented me with such an ingenious and attractive criminal antagonist. It's been fun crossing swords with you. Thank you, sir. And I shall drink to return engagement, Gregory. And I shall drink to the amazing good fortune that has enabled Gregory Hood and Company to be successful when it's headed by a sentimental idiot. Amen to that, Sandy.
That was a swell story, Greg, but uh, say, do you really think you'll see her again? Absolutely. There was one little thing I did to make sure of it. You wouldn't by some chance mean that bit of romancing you handed out is a surefire way to bring her back. Harry, that's the obvious way. Okay, you were more subtle. What was it? It's only my deep friendship that leads me to setting things up for you like this, Harry. Remember that drink I bought her? Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't ice water, old man. <laughs> smart stuff, Gregory. And if she's as smart as she seemed, she knows that the Petri wine you undoubtedly bought her is good wine. Why, it's got to be. Look at the long years of skill and experience that go into its making. The Petri family has been making wine for generations. Winemaking is their heritage. A heritage handed down from father to son, from father to son. So you can see why the Petri business has grown and grown so that today the Petri family are America's largest independent winemakers. Yes, the making of Petri wine is a family affair, and the Petri family has every intention of keeping it just that. So you know the name Petri on a bottle of wine is more than a trademark. It's the personal assurance of the Petri family that Petri wine is and always will be good wine. Well, Greg, what page of the case book are you turning to for next week's story? A page that has the heading, The Adventure of the Venerable Thugs. It concerns a certain hilarious convention that took place in San Francisco and a strange series of happenings that lead a crooked trail to murder. See you next Monday, Greg. And the Monday after that, no doubt. Harry, what do you suppose you'll be doing ten years from now? Oh, uh... What? Oh, now don't mind me. I was just musing about all the people who will have their dreams realized ten years from now. You know, a college education for their children, or a new home, or maybe a trip abroad. A rich uncle. Exactly, Harry. A rich Uncle Sam who's going to pay them four dollars for every three dollars they put into savings bonds today. Really, I can't think of a better way to invest your money than in United States savings bonds. Good night. <laughs> motion pictures with Hollywood's greatest stars. Today, the radio production of Paramount's picture, The Major and the Minor, starring Robert Young and Joan Caulfield. Once upon a time in 1941, just before we entered the late Great War, there was a suburb of Los Angeles called, uh, uh, let me see now, oh yes, New York City. And in this city lived a little lady named Susan Applegate, and boy was she lonesome for her old hometown of Stevenson, Iowa. She was trying to make a living in New York by being a hair and scalp expert of all things. Well... One day, she went to the office of a certain Mr. Osborne to give him a scalp treatment when things suddenly came to a head. No pun intended. 
Susan Applegate, eh? Well, Susie, just slip out of your wet coat and into a dry martini, hey? <laughs> oh, yes, he was quite the rogue with Mr. Osborne. Well, one thing led to another until finally Susan led to Mr. Osborne's chin with a hard left and ran for it. Right down to Grand Central Station. The first step towards Stevenson, Iowa, the old hometown. Ah, but there was immediately a hitch. $32.50 for a day coach to Stevenson. That's it, lady. Oh, but it was only $27.50 when I came to New York. It went up. But all I have is $27.50. I've been saving that to go home on. Sorry, lady. Do you want the ticket or not? Can't I please have it a little cheaper? I don't take up much room. Look at me. I'm tiny, petite, dainty. I'm sorry, lady. Only ones who go half fair are kids under 12. Now, please move along. Oh, no wonder New York has such a big population. You can get in, but you can't get out. Don't ever underestimate the Middle West and its tiny, petite, dainty people like Susan Applegate. Susan vanished into the ladies' room. And five minutes later, emerged even daintier, tinier, petiter than ever. The brim of her hat was turned up, her stockings were rolled down. Her skirt was shorter, and her hair let down was longer. Get it, folks? Catch on? Half fair for children under 12 years of age. Big for his age or dumb for his age? <laughs> oh, big. Uh, you look kind of filled out, 12. Triangular oh, trouble. <laughs> Wait a minute, Curly. You're Swedish. Say something in Swedish. I want to be alone. Well, look, Miss, you better come along with me. Who, me? Excuse me, please. Hey, where are you going? I can't tell. Excuse me. Hey! Hey, you! Come back! Stop! You! You! Hey, you! Oh, I've got to get away from the conductor. I've got the high from there. Oh, here. Drawing room, eh? Well, what's this? Hello. One of us is in the wrong compartment, little girl. Hmm. I know. I'll go in a minute. Does your uh, mother know you're in the wrong car? Oh, I'm traveling alone. I I just happened to get sicky in the day coach. Sick? Oh, that's too bad. Uh, where are you headed for? Stevenson, Iowa. What? Why, you can't sit up all night in the coach. You're going to sleep right here. I'll uh, ring for the porter to make up the... Oh, no. Please don't ring for the porter. Why not? Oh, because he's got long yellow teeth and a little bit the eyes. And his hands have black fur all over them. Really? Uh-huh. <laughs> and the first time I saw him was in the asparagus forest. Oh, yeah. And then in the wonderful sideways airplane. And then in the wizard's palace. And every time I have a bad dream, 
don't get excited, child. I'll uh, make up the birth myself. Uh, what's your name? Susan Applegate. People call me Susu. Susu? Hmm? I'm Major Philip Kirby. Major? Like Major Hoople in the funny papers? Well, just about. You see, I'm not on active service. I just teach at Wallace Military Institute for Boys back in Indiana. Well, I hope you have a nightie in that overnight bag. But, uh, Major Kirby... I just think of me as your Uncle Philip, Susu. Now, suppose you go into that little room and get into your nightie. Uh, yes, Uncle Philip. And uh, just sing out if you have any trouble with your buttons. <laughs> Susu? Good morning, Susu. Uh, Did you have a good night's sleep up there? Oh, fine. Thank you, Uncle Philip. Why is the train stopped? Oh, we've been stopped for hours. Tracks up ahead are underwater. We'll be stuck here for quite some time longer. So if you'll just stay right there in bed, Uncle Philip will go up to the diner and bring you back a nice breakfast. Now, don't you stir from where you are. Father. <laughs> uh, see if the coast is a good... Hi, sorry. Uh, there must be uh, some mistake. Uh, uh, Paula, come in here. Well, what's the matter? This isn't Philip's room. Oh! Oh, we're so sorry. We're in the wrong drawing room. <laughs> or are we? We certainly are not. I'm sure that Philip's cap is hanging there. Sing the song of oh, that's Lock Philip coming now. Four and twenty blackbird beckett do... <clears throat> Pamela. Uh, <laughs> Colonel Hill. Don't speak to me. Huh? Go feed your mysterious companion. Well, Major Kirby, I'll have you cashed out of Wallace Military Institution for this. Oh, now, wait, Colonel. Listen here. This we drove oh... 27 miles over washed-out roads to take you home because we'd heard the train was stalled. And what do we find? Now, Pamela, listen to me. And this... you on your way back to see your fiancé. Come on, daughter. No place for decent folks. Goodbye, Philip. I hope the young lady enjoys her breakfast in bed. Come along, father. Indeed. Oh, murder. Am I in hot water? Oh, I'm so sorry. It's really my fault. Oh, no, Susan. Only now I, uh, I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to get off at my station and come with me. Come with you? Yes, to Pamela and Colonel Hill's house to clear this up. Well, sure. It's the least I can do, Uncle Philip. <laughs> Major Kirby, your presence in my home is an impertinence after what happened back on that train. But, Colonel Hill, if you'd only let me explain how... Father, let Philip explain, if he can. I'm just asking both of you to brace yourselves to meet this woman of Babylon as she really is. Susu, you may come in now. Yes, Uncle Philip? Susu, this is Pamela Hill, my fiancé, and Colonel Hill of the faculty of Wallace Military Institute for Boys. Hello. Why, Philip? I think she's just a child. Oh, how utterly beguiling. Oh, Philip, you darling. <laughs> it's our fault entirely, Major. Faulty reconnaissance work, that's what it was. <laughs> May I go home now, Uncle Philip? Oh, she calls him Uncle Phil with Father. How beguiling. How completely beguiling. Oh, you can't go home, Susu. Not with the tracks underwater for two more days. You like boys, don't you, Susu? What kind of boys? Little boys. Uh, lots of boys. Cadets at the Institute here. 
Uncle Philip is going to have you meet the whole battalion. And there's a military ball day after tomorrow. And you're going to stay right here in this house. But I don't. Now, come on upstairs, Sue. I want you to meet Lucy. Lucy? By the way, Philip, I've written General McWhirter's wife in Washington about your transfer. Oh, really? Maybe I'll be getting a telegram anytime. You might. Great. Come along, Susu. Let's go meet Lucy. Lucy? Who's Lucy? My little sister, just your age. She'll be your roommate. Roommate? Mm-hmm. Great. Oh, Lucy, I like your room. And you have goldfishes, too. They aren't solid gold, so relax. Look at the one sticking his nose up. I bet he wants his dividend. One more word like that out of you, and I'm going to be sick. Huh? Listen, maybe you can bluff grown-ups with that act, but you can't bluff me. What? It's perfectly apparent to me that you're no child. You're 22 if you're a day. Okay, Lucy, you win. When are you going to tell your sister Pamela? I'm not going to tell her. No? Why not? Because she's a stinker. Major Kirby hates his job here. He wants to transfer to active military service. But, oh, no, Pamela likes it here. So she's pulling strings behind his back so he'll never get his transfer. Why tell me about it? I expect you to help. Me? How? We should discuss this more anon. Okay, come in. Oh, the Army. Miss Susan Applegate? Yes? The cadet adjutant regrets he cannot escort you to go canoeing this afternoon, but has ordered Cadet Lieutenant Clifford Osborne to take his place. Who fixed all this up for me? Major Philip Kirby, miss. Uncle Philip, remember? May I assure you, Miss Applegate, that you will find Cadet Lieutenant Clifford Osborne very amusing and plenty good-looking, too. All right. Where is this Cadet Lieutenant Clifford Osborne? I am Cadet Lieutenant Clifford Osborne. A dismal creature, if I may say so. Move over on the seat, will you, Susan? Hey, not too on the seat. Not in the canoe. Oh, sure. Now, the uh, topic for this afternoon is my theory about the recent fall of France. Uh, now, say your right arm is the uh, big Maginot line. That's where the real dynamite is. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I uh, pin down the uh, big Maginot. Yeah. Then I uh, pin down your your left arm, <laughs> the little Maginot line. Uh, now uh, look here, strategy. Take it easy. Now. Give up? How about a kiss? Hey, see, you're rocking the boat. One measly little kiss. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Hey, look out. Oh, we're going over. Oh, oh. Here. Here. Hold on to me. Or we'll get you home and out of your wet clothes into a dry martini. <laughs> hey, where have I heard that before? <laughs> I'm worried about you. About me, Uncle Phil? Mm-hmm. Why? You had a nice time today, didn't you? Well, yes. Well, you see, that's what I want to talk to you about. You see, Cece. I mean, you see, Cece. <laughs> um, you have uh, very nice eyes. And uh, 
rather, well, to, for your age. <laughs> Making you singularly attractive to boys. You see what I mean? I think I see what you mean, Uncle Philip. Oh, I don't mean you're not to have dates or a little flirtation, you know. I want you to keep right on having a good time, but not uh, too good. I understand, Uncle Phil. Get this. Knock when you enter a room, Lucy. It's my room, isn't it? Now look at this letter I just seemed to open in the kitchen. My dear sister Pamela wrote it. Read it. Cornelia, darling, you beguiling creature. Cornelia, darling, is someone Pamela hardly even knows, but who happens to be the wife of General McWhorter in Washington. You know what that perfect pussy of a sister of mine is writing there? Telling Cornelia, darling, to get the general not to transfer Philip to active duty. Hmm. You know, Lucy, I begin to understand how you feel about Philip. All right, so what do we do? You say Pamela doesn't know this lady very well? Hardly at all. Well, suppose someone who sounded like Pamela called up Cornelia, darling, long distance, and made a pitch in favor of Philip's transfer. Hey, would you do that for an old pal, Susan, huh? Hmm. For an old pal, Lucy, and for Uncle Philip? Why not? I'll put a call through right now. What? Can you speak a little louder, Cornelia, darling? You beguiling creature. Would you speak to the general about Philip for me? You see, he's so desperately anxious for active service. And I'll go anywhere he goes. Iceland, Trinidad, Honolulu, anywhere. You will? Honestly. Oh, Cornelia, darling, you beguiling creature. Well, that concludes Act One, and now it's intermission time on Hollywood Star Time. And before we continue with Act Two of today's play, here's a musical change of pace by Harry Zimmerman and the orchestra, featuring the four little sisters.
Time continues now with a radio production of The Major and the Minor, starring Robert Young and Joan Caulfield. The Major and the Minor comes to you through the cooperation of Paramount Pictures, whose current release is the Hal Wallace production, The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, starring Barbara Stanwyck, Van Heflin, and Elizabeth Scott. Joan Caulfield appears today through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures and will soon be seen co-starring in Monsieur Bouquet. Now, Act Two... The Major and the Minor. Homesick and discouraged in New York, Susan Applegate just had to get back home to Stevenson, Iowa. Not having enough train fare, she posed as a 12-year-old girl. Met Major Philip Kirby on the train and is wound up at the Indiana home of Pamela Hill, Kirby's fiancée. Tonight is the night of the military ball at Wallace Institute for Boys, where Major Philip Kirby teaches. And all the boys, including that more elderly boy, Major Kirby himself, are giving that remarkable 12-year-old the big rush. Excuse me, Miss Applegate. Oh, Uncle Philip. Hello. 
Nice dance, huh? Well, it would be an even nicer dance, Susu, if this one were mine. But it is. I saved it for you, Philip. Uncle Philip, that is. Then come on. Let's uh, cut a rug. I gotta have three dollars. I've got to. Now, uh, Clifford, I came all the way from New York City. Well, I think you'd want to spend some time with your father. This is a dance, Dad. This is a dance. Stop that. The only way I can get a dance with Susu is to buy one from Jimmy McDougal. And he's asking three dollars. Oh, Susu must be quite a girl. Uh, there she is, Dad. See? In the blue velvet dress. Uh huh? Yeah, uh, $3, did you say? Dad? Dad? Hi, Dad. I want you to meet Susu. Mm. Susu, huh? How do you do, Mr. Osborne? Uh, haven't I had the pleasure before? I don't think you've had the pleasure. Are you sure we haven't met someplace before? Take it easy, Dad. I saw her first. May I have this wall, Susu? Uh, pardon me, son, but may I have this wall, <laughs> Susu? Uh, why? Why, you Major Kirby. Oh, Susu. Have... Uh, see what I mean? Susu, our dance again, I believe. Excuse us, gentlemen. Yeah, Come on, Cinderella. One, two, three. One. I, uh... I must have met her somewhere. Nah. I must have. They couldn't have. I must have! Uh, Corporal, here, Corporal. Oh, it's telegram for you, Major Kirby. Thank you very much, Corporal. Yes, sir. Not at all, sir. Maybe this is from General McWhorter about my transfer, I hope. Well, open it. Yeah. Uh, keep your fingers crossed, Susu. Is it what you wanted? Is it? It certainly is. Oh, I'm so glad for you. Uh, excuse me, Susu, will you? You know, Pamela did this for me. Excuse me. Of course. Pamela? Oh, where is she? Pamela! Pamela! But, Philip, the telegram says we parked to Washington in one week. Well, what the deuce, Pam? You wanted me to get it, didn't you? You got it for me. If I did, it was a mistake. I'm sure it isn't too late to correct the error I've made. Pamela, there's going to be a war. Oh. Well, there is. These are orders that we've asked for. To ask for them to be changed again is, what well, it's unthinkable. You mean I have to accept you, transfer and all, or not at all? Pamela, you bewilder me. First you get me the transfer, then when it does come through... Oh, you that's actual... quite enough, Philip. Will you please excuse me? Pamela, I... Pamela spelled backward is Alamap. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense either. Why, Uncle Philip, I thought you said you couldn't dance well. Ah, that was the old Uncle Philip. You're just the first. Beautiful. I am magnificent. I've just been through an experience that should have crushed me. But look at me. The newer, the better, the lighter-hearted Uncle Philip. I've only felt this way once before in my life. When was that? Ah, uh, long ago. I was in love with my dancing teacher. She, she was 38 and I was 12. <laughs> Uncle Philip, 
I'm only 12, too, and you know what? Yes. You do? Yes, I'm always off schedule on my crushes about 25 years. Uh, excuse me, Miss Hill. Yes? I'm, uh, I'm Cadet Osborne's father. Yes, Mr. Osborne. Uh, that's a girl in the blue velvet dress dancing with uh, Major Kirby again. Uh, uh, Susan Applegate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I had a crazy notion she was a little bit of fluff from a scalp massage place in New York. Named, uh, <laughs> Susan Applegate. What did you say, Mr. Osborne? Well, only that Susan Applegate was a few years older. Twenty-three, I bet. Tell me more, Mr. Osborne. Do tell me a lot more. Pamela. Oh. Waiting for someone, Susan? Uncle Philip. I've been chatting with an old acquaintance of yours. Who? Or perhaps I should say an old customer of yours. When you massage sundry scalps in New York. Mr. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can fire when ready, Pamela. Well, first, you came here posing as a child of 12. And I suspect you arranged that transfer of Phillips. Yes, I did. First you took over my fiancé's career, now you'd like to take over my fiancé. Well, you don't love him. Oh, leave that to me, will you? Either you leave as you came, as little Susu Applegate, or there's going to be a nasty scandal about someone being cashiered out of the service. There's a train leaving tonight at 11.40, allowing no time for goodbyes. You understand, Miss Applegate? All right, Pamela, I'll go. By the way, after you've gone, Major Kirby and I will go ahead with our plan and be married on the 15th. If you don't mind. Well, that's about all, folks. That's it. That's the story. Susan Applegate went back to Stevenson, Iowa. Hey, that's an unhappy ending. This won't do. Let's see. Susan hadn't been home in Stevenson more than a week when the front doorbell rang. Susan, looking her age, 22, it was a day, opened the door of her mother's cottage. Pardon me, is this the home of... Well, Susan, look at you. Why, you... And you're not, uh, uh, no knees. <laughs> what goes? Won't you come in, Philip? Oh, sure, but uh, I mean I have only a few minutes between trains. I'm headed for the West Coast. I looked you up. I wanted to see you again. I wanted to ask you why you left a week ago without saying goodbye. But uh, uh, look at you. You're so beautiful. Lovely. Why, how you've grown. <laughs> how was the wedding, Major Kirby? The wedding? Oh, fine. The colonel was gay as a goat. Arches of swords for the bride and groom, all very okay. Everyone sends his love, the Colonel, Cadet Osborne, Company A, Company B, Company C, Company B. And uh, Mrs. Kirby? And Mrs. Kirby. Uh, Mrs. who? Your wife. My wife? Oh, <laughs> Pamela didn't marry me. But the wedding, Philip. Oh, Pamela married someone else she had on her string. Someone solid and dependable. Oh. Oh. Oh, Philip, darling. Now, uh, then, Susu, how... How fast can you pack? Uh, five minutes? Ten? Twelve? Well, what the hurry? Well, my train leaves in 15 minutes. You're coming with me. Where to? We're stopping in Nevada. You're going to marry a soldier, a brass hat named Kirby. Oh, good uh, Never mind. You're busy. And, oh, uh, wait a minute. Train fare. Uh, money. What do I use for money? Money? Train fare? For you. You're my responsibility now. 
crazy. Oh, that's easy. I can turn up my hat and roll down my socks and hike up my skirt and let down my hair so no one would know I was a day over 12. Oh, don't be silly, Susan. Well, why not? Why not? Why not? Why, you, you just never get away with it. That's why not. Uncle Philip, are you kidding? Thank you, Robert Young and Joan Caulfield, for your visit today to Hollywood Star Time. This radio production, which came to you direct from Hollywood, was written by Milton Geiger and produced by Robert L. Redd. Time brought you another radio version of one of Hollywood's best motion pictures featuring Hollywood's outstanding stars. 